The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. We're continuing our series in the epistles of First and Second Thessalonians, and we move to Second Thessalonians where we'll be looking at this over the next three Sunday evenings. Second Thessalonians at chapter 1, short letter to the apostle, from the apostle to this same small faithful church that had just been planted a few months before, let us hear the word of God. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be, to be marveled at among all who have be believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It has been a, only a short time since the Apostle Paul wrote First Thessalonians, and now he's writing another short epistle to this fledgling church. And the question that we look at in chapter 1 is, how are Christians called to continue to persevere in faith and in love and in, in hope in Christ in the midst of suffering, which apparently had worsened. For the citizens of North Korea, this is not just a theoretical issue. A hundred years ago, George Bernard Shaw famously warned that the Bible is the most dangerous book on earth, and the 24 million people 
in North Korea certainly know that to be true. On November 3rd of 2013, 80 North Koreans were publicly executed in various places around North Korea for a number of different reasons. Some were accused of watching South Korean DVDs that had been smuggled into the North. Some of them were executed for possessing the Bible. The ruling Kim family regime controls every, every aspect of citizens' lives in North Korea, including what information reaches them from the world outside. Bibles, foreign DVDs, the Internet, cell phones that can make international call, calls, all of these things are banned in North Korea. The families of those who were executed were sent to political prison camps. With, which is in keeping with the regime's long-standing policy of punishing three generations of a family for one member's transgression. So there are stories you can read about grandchildren of people sentenced for crimes who are still bearing the punishment of that. Most inmates of these prison camps do not survive for very long. North Korea's Dictator, the young Kim Jong-un, is the third generation of dictators to use torture, imprisonment, execution for Koreans who seek God. The only worship permitted in North Korea is that of the Kim family members. Every North Korean wears a badge over his heart displaying a photograph of the smiling face of Kim Il-sung, the country's founder. Citizens are required to adhere to a national belief system relating to that worship, we would say. Well, South Korea maintains, publishes an annual report on human rights. And I'll just finish this opening illustration by telling you about one particular account in this year's edition. One um, family hid their Bible in a magpie's nest perched in a tree near their home. They would hide it there for safekeeping so no one could see it. The family had been Christians since before the founding of the regime three generations ago and had worshipped in secret for more than 50 years. But when a neighbor cut off a branch of the tree, their Bible was discovered and Three generations of the family disappeared. That's the kind of persecution that's still going on in our world. This evening, we want to consider the issue of persevering in view of Christ's return. And certainly, that applies to suffering that's directly related to the cause of Christ, as Thessalonians were experiencing. But it also has application to all of us, to all suffering any suffering a Christian experiences with the calling, no matter what the suffering may be from, to persevere with a continued orientation to the return of Christ and the great hope that that is for all of us. Let us consider tonight first, though he delays, God will one day judge the world. And that is a clear theme we find in First Thessalonians 1. Though he now delays, and it is still the day of salvation, 
anticipation. One day, God will judge the world. We recall from our study of 1 Thessalonians that the church in Thessalonica was formed and immediately experienced persecution. If you read Acts 17, if you go home tonight and read that, you'll see the story of the founding of that church. And very shortly after the gospel is received by that pledging group, a riot ensues and there's a mob incited against the Christians there and the Apostle Paul has to flee town. And some of the Leaders of this church are dragged to the city officials by this mob. Maybe some of you have been in a riot or something like that at some point. Our niece, one of our nieces was in Greece about a year ago when the rioting against the banks in Greece occurred. And she had just, been, she had just arrived with a group from uh, her area that was, on, that was going on a short visit there. And the bus driver refused to go into the rioting area where their four-star motel was. And so he dropped them off about a mile away. And with their suitcases in tow and with their high heels on, they walked the the last mile. And one of the persons in her group was actually caught up in the rioting. It was a very terrifying thing. But even for those who weren't, they were very close to it. Some of them, their eyes started to water from the tear gas and they barely made it into the motel safely. But even being on the periphery of something like that, and even when the, the mob action or the rioting isn't aimed at you, it can be a terrifying thing. I've never been in anything like that. I've seen videos like that from the security of my living room and seeing it on television, but I haven't experienced it. So that forms the beginning of what the Thessalonians endured and experienced. Persecution from the very beginning. And we aren't told exactly how the persecution is continuing at this point, but it's clear from verse 4, when end of that verse, Paul says, in all, in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring, he changes the greeting somewhat in verses 3 and 4. In First Thessalonians The greeting involved faith, hope, and love, and now it involves faith and love and perseverance. And the words he uses there, and all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring, seem to be that he's gotten news, he's gotten word from them, that their persecution, their suffering, is worsening in some way, at least for the time being. And then he begins to set forth the reality of Christ's return, and how his return should impact these young believers. We, we might say he is stating a theodicy. In other words, a defense of why Christians suffer, why there is suffering, and how we are to view that. And the clear theme is that Jesus Christ is coming as the ultimate judge. Verse 5, this is evidence. In other words, what you are going through and how you are enduring it, your perseverance in that. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. And then it's interesting the way Paul lays out this play on words about the afflictions they're going through and what God is going to do when Jesus Christ returns. Verse 6, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. The ESV does well in picking up the Greek play on words. God is going to afflict those who afflict you. 
and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, Paul includes himself, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Clearly, the apostle is linking their suffering to the ultimate justice of God. And he's saying, what you are going through, the way you are persevering in suffering is evidence of something far beyond you, something greater than you. It's evidence that God is at work, and this shouldn't surprise us. Maybe they were saying, if we're going through this, does this mean that our faith is not true? Does this mean that God is not on the throne? Does this mean that this is all false, what Paul has brought to us? And he's saying, no, you may think that way, but it's actually evidence that points in another direction. It's evidence of the ultimate judgment of God. Very sober, solemn words here that bring forth this inescapable truth that when Jesus comes, he will come as the just judge. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Notice how verse 8 points out that the ultimate criteria for this judgment, it says, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The two phrases describe the same group. If you do not know God, you have not obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have not obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ by trusting in Christ, then fundamentally, a person does not know God. God, it's two phrases to describe the same group. And so one thing that we learn about God's judgment, the first thing we learn about the judgment of God is that faith in Christ is the only refuge from the just judgment that is to come. The only thing that's going to matter when the trumpet sounds, when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed in blazing fire, is this question, are we in Christ by grace through faith? Am I in Jesus Christ? Revelation 20, verse 15, puts it this way. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So interesting how the way the Bible portrays the names of the elect, the names of those who are saved as being written in God's book of life. And you're either in the book of life or you're not. If you're not, no matter how relatively good you may have been in this life, in terms of human terms, it's not to any avail. Maybe some of you were following the scientific investigation at the South Pole in Antarctica in the, in the sea that was icing up the past week or two and this expedition on this spe- special ship equipped for scientific discovery. About 40 scientists were down there and we all followed it because they got encased in the ice flow faster than they thought. It reminds me of an expedition of the Endurance 100 years ago that got caught in a similar ice flow and was stuck there for months and finally in a little boat, they managed, some of them managed to uh, find their way to safety by navigating over hundreds of miles. But now we have modern technology. One article 
was quick to point out that it was ironic that those who were um, investigating global warming because of fossil fuels were saved by fossil fuels. It was kind of interesting. And they made the point, what, what was it that powered the helicopters who picked them up and the ships that were close by and everything? And, and this article mentioned that some of them were going to plant trees to make up for that use of fossil fuels. Anyway, I'm not saying that's wrong. It's just ironic. But it reminded me of the Titanic and just how the Titanic hit the iceberg, we all know, and began to sink. And the issue for people on the Titanic was not if you can swim better than somebody else or if you can hold your breath longer than somebody else next to you. The question was, did you get into a lifeboat or not? If you're in a lifeboat, then you were going to be saved, most likely. But if you weren't in a lifeboat, there was no hope. We can almost use that analogy by comparison to think about being in Christ. He's like a lifeboat. Either on the day of judgment, I am in Christ or not. I am in the Lamb's book of life or not. That is the crucial issue for all of us. Am I in Christ through faith? But we also see about Christ's judgment here that the destruction being spoken of, hell, is eternal destruction away from God's presence. We see that very sobering description of hell in verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. In Dr. Rogers' book about life after death and what happens after I die, he notes that this phrase, eternal destruction, is a clear indicator among other clear passages in Scripture that talk about the fact that hell is everlasting and hell is something that is real. It's not just annihilation, as some would argue. They, those who do not know God, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. And then it's not a separate characteristic, but it's a further characteristic that describes the same thing in other words, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. This verse is telling us what is the essence of hell. The essence of hell is punishment from sin and complete separation from the blessed presence of the glory of God. All that God is in his beauty and character, all that we see in creation around us, even on a a cold, dreary day like this, there's still beauty in what we see, and God still sustains us in our lives on this earth. And we, we try to fathom the answer to the question, what would it be like to be completely separated from God? and all the good things that God gives us. Every one of us, believer and unbeliever alike, experience thousands and thousands of blessings every day from the living God. Just think of the things that you enjoy every day, a good meal, being able to breathe, being able to walk, being able to see, hearing music, seeing the smile of another person's face, hearing laughter, being able to communicate and talk, just all of these experiences of everyday life that we take for granted so much, all of them are part of God's good gifts to us. 
And as we hear this, this verse speaking about being shut out from the presence of God, someone might hear that verse and think, well, I don't really care that much about whether I'm in the presence of God or not. I enjoy my life just without God really having any part or anything to do with my life. It's possible that someone might be here who, in the deepest thoughts of their hearts, thinks that way and thinks, I don't really need God, and I don't really care about God. But the fact of the matter is, when we, when we read this and we think about it and meditate on it, even if you have lived your entire life on this earth in rebellion against God and all of what God calls you to in Christ and in the, the gospel, the truth is, even if you've lived that way, you have still experienced the goodness of God every day of your life. And the reality of hell being described here is that there will be no such goodness like that in hell. None of God's good gifts, not an ounce of God's gracious presence will be there. Instead, only the abiding, righteous judgment of God. Even standing up here and saying that to you all just fills me with a sense of dread and awe that that's the reality of what the Bible says. And we should never treat that in a trite manner. It's always a very sobering thing and to be reflected on with solemn um, thought in this life. There's a play on words in verse 6. These believers have been experiencing affliction, and God is going to afflict them. And we see what that affliction is here. It's this righteous judgment of God. It's a sobering thought. And um, we go down to verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. We've seen affliction to those who don't know God. And then there's this description of comfort to those who do know God. I think it's hard for those of us in the West to identify with a degree of comfort the believers in a place such as North Korea will experience when Jesus Christ returns. Maybe his return is still hundreds or thousands of years from now. We don't know. But if Jesus Christ were to come today, think of what those believers in North Korea would experience. Having been persecuted so severely for so long, And so harshly, and then suddenly, to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at. There's this sense that there's going to be this double glory. Jesus is going to be glorified in his saints, and and they're going to marvel at him. It reminds me of how um, you think of people who have done famous things, and people marvel at that when the Lewis and Clark expedition returned, there was this sense after they had been gone for two long years that uh, people thought they were returning from, from the grave. They were marveled at. It's like when the Apollo astronauts returned, they were so famous. That's what the coming of Jesus Christ will bring, this sense of glorifying God, God glorified in his people whom he's 
sustained through their earthly pilgrimage and his people glorifying him and, and marveling at him that Jesus Christ has come. There will be this comfort, this relief, this joyful reunion. No more suffering. No more struggling with sin. No more spiritual warfare. Can you imagine the great relief that will bring? A great celebration and relief for every child of God. And so the return of Christ brings judgment, just judgment on those who do not know God, but it brings comfort to those who who do know God. Let us think about two brief applications of our text then. Number one, it is good for Christians to find comfort in the righteous judgment of God. It is good for Christians to receive comfort in the righteous judgment of God. That may be something that you have thought about before and are not sure if it's right. In some senses, it may be harsh to think that Christians should be taking comfort that God will judge their persecutors and oppressors? You know, when you think of someone in North Korea, would it be right for someone in a gulag to be looking for relief and for God to exercise justice? Well, in Revelation chapter 6, it's interesting that it, it speaks about those who have been put to death for their faith. And it's, it speaks about them as crying out, how long, O Lord? In Revelation 6, verse 9, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. People who had been slain for the word of God. What do they cry out? They cry out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the scriptures don't say that this is wrong that they're saying this. This is, this is a part of true Christian experience that it's right to take refuge in the just judgment of God. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So they're told, wait. The justice of God delays, but it will finally come. It's interesting in Psalm 10, a psalm that speaks about oppression and about the arrogant and the powerful oppressing the weak. And in Psalm 10, verse 10, it says, The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, This is the oppressor says, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Think of all the oppression that goes on in our world, the human trafficking, the exploitation of individuals around the world. This psalm is for individuals like that. Maybe some of you have been victimized earlier in life. But then verse 12, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself, for you have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account 
till you find none. There, it's interesting that same kind of theme of the victim crying out to a God who is just and will one day execute judgment. And sometimes he does it in this life. He executes temporal judgments in this life. But ultimately, the final judgment to come. And it's not wrong for Christians to find comfort in this truth of the justice of God. The almost mysterious thing about all of this is that at the same time that the Christian is taking comfort in the judgment of God, the Christian is also called to be praying for those who persecute him or her. Interesting, isn't it? Those sentiments, those thoughts can coexist in the Christian's heart and mind and life. Crying out, how long, O Lord, till you judge? Break the arm of the oppressors. See, Lord, act. In other words, a cry for justice is also linked to pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Love your enemies. Those truths can coexist in the Christian heart and soul. Especially praying that the judgment due to such individuals might be swallowed up in God's mercy as that individual comes to faith in Christ. So that judgment would take place, but that it would be the judgment that fell upon Christ. If we are to bless those who persecute us, that is certainly the greatest blessing that we could pray for, that they would come to know Christ. And so the Christian can rightly have both those thoughts and express them to God, longing for God's judgment to be be revealed, yet doing so without personal vindictiveness, without personal vengeance, without a spirit of revenge, and in that sense, letting God be God. Because the Lord declares, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The scripture tells us that so that we do not take vengeance into our own hands. When Jesus was going to the cross, when he was being insulted and not retaliating, Peter tells us later in 1 Peter 2, he tells us that Jesus was entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And in a sense, that's what the Thessalonians are called to do as well. We are to take comfort in the just judgment of God. And maybe for some of you here, uh, you've suffered to some degree because of your faithfulness to Christ. Maybe you've lost a job or haven't got the promotion you thought you should have. Or maybe in your school or neighborhood, there's been a degree of suffering For the sake of Christ, probably none of us have to face in any way the more severe persecutions that the Bible speaks about and others around the world experience. But still, an opportunity to entrust yourself to him who judges justly, to trust in the Lord. The reality of Christ's coming enables us to entrust ourselves to him. And then one other application I could see is this. The coming of Christ motivate us, motivates us to live for God today. It's interesting, the prayer Paul concludes with in verses 11 and 12. 
To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ is a motivation. After Paul has described this, he's saying, brothers and sisters, we're praying for you. We're praying for you, not only that you suffer unto Christ, that your suffering is oriented to God with a Godward focus, looking to him and his coming and his justice and his comfort that he will bring you, but also that the coming of Christ motivates you to live for Jesus Christ today, that you are called by your Lord to live in a way that pleases him, every resolve for good, every work of faith by his power, that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. You and I as Christians are caught up in something much higher and more noble than just living for ourselves. Really, what is the way of the world? The way of the world is you live for yourself. You're a pro football player and your team is just lost Eagles fans, this is where you think about this. And now you're thinking, am I going to go to another team? What am I going to do? A coach might go here, go there. You know, suddenly it's the end of the 2013 Eagles now, right? And then everybody's thinking about himself. And I'm not saying that's wrong. You have to, you know, look out for your own career. But your life is more than all of that. The Christian's life is caught up in something higher than that that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. What a marvelous statement of the way the glory of God is worked out in God's people. Life is more than personal comfort and ease and money and success and all of these things, as good as they are in and of themselves. To this end, verse 11 says, to this end, with Christ's return in mind. That's the great end. With that great return of Christ in mind, we pray that God would count you worthy of his calling. And so meditating on the return of Christ energizes us to live for God now. Maybe some of you read through the pages of 2013 deaths in World Magazine. I always like to do that at the end of the year. It always surprises me how many people die every year. And this year was not an exception to that. I read through all of those and I thought, it will really not be long until we see the Lord. Yes, some of the folks on the pages live pretty long. There was Edith Schaefer, the wife of Francis Schaefer, who died at age 98. And C. Everett Koop, that famous champion of the pro-life cause, was 96. So there were some that were older. George Beverly Shea was 104 He takes the cake for the oldest, I think. But there was Margaret Thatcher, Nelson Mandela, but there was also Hugo Chavez, a dictator who clearly opposed the work of Christ. And we could go on and on. Scott Carpenter, the second American to orbit the earth and that disastrous mission that was his last one. But he survived, but he did not go into space again. And you just see all these names And some of them, inventing, the person who invented the computer mouse died this year. I forget his name already, but that's pretty 
important, isn't it? The mouse. You know, no matter how famous somebody is, history is going to move on. Things are moving along very fast from an eternal perspective. You and I need to be about the business of living for Christ's glory, doing the will of God today, this week, seeking Jesus Christ, knowing Jesus and making him known, and very, very soon we will all stand before him. Father, we thank you that there is such certainty in Jesus. We see the world around us and the Uh, turmoil and strife and the uncertainty of financial markets and wars, rumors of wars, persecution, wealth and affluence on many sides, and yet poverty on the other side. And there is so much uh, that we do not understand about the way you are working all of history toward this grand finale of the return of Christ our Lord. We pray that you would bring these things closer to our hearts and minds. Thank you for your word, which is truth. Thank you that even like this fledgling church of Thessalonica, that we, we are dependent completely on Jesus Christ and that it is good that it is so. He is our rock and our redeemer. Help us to abide in him this week. We pray in his name. Amen.